In episode seven of our Frankly Speaking podcast, recorded on Thursday, the 24th of March, 2022, senior fellows Paul Taylor and Chris Kremidis-Courtney are joined by guest speaker Isabel Durand, member of the Board of Friends of Europe and Deputy Secretary General of UNCTAD, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. In Ukraine, for a moment, it looked like Ukrainians were gaining the upper hand on the battlefield but everyone expects a large Russian counteroffensive. The question is whether the international community can put enough pressure on Moscow to prevent that. This will surely be on the agenda at the NATO summit, EU and G7 summit happening on the day we are recording. In this episode, we take a look at the impact of the conflict on global economic and trade activities and ask what can we do now to prevent dire consequences wreaking havoc around the world at a later date especially in developing countries. We also discuss the new phenomenon of this war, the highly effective global whole of society effort. And finally, we end with a couple of questions from citizens from our Debating Europe platform. I'd like to um, turn to our first question uh, to our guest speaker, Isabel Durand. Um, how can uh, UNCTAD contribute to resolve the economic and trade consequences of the conflict in Ukraine? Isabel, over to you for this first question. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. Well, to resolve the problem, of course, UNCTAD will not resolve the problem. UNCTAD, uh, for those who are not knowing very well UNCTAD, UNCTAD is kind of OECD of the Global South. So we are really an organization trying to compile, collect uh, data analysis, expertise on trade and development. And it's why it's so important that we could really inform, document what, what is happening, what could happen, uh, how we can simulate the future on trade and development uh, regarding all the data that we compiled for decades. Uh, it's true that uh, we, we know that uh, this data could help developing countries, but also all countries, to advocate properly in the place where decisions have to be taken. I mean, of course, the G7, G20, uh, the WTO, uh, the IMF, in order to look for Global South, how we could really try to help them. They have all known all the problem and they have, hit, they have been hit by the COVID-19 crisis. And now this one, it's really something which, is, which needs as bread material to take correct and ad adequate decisions. Now, I know that um, UNCTAD um, has come out recently with a rapid assessment report of the impact of war in Ukraine on trade and development. Um, the highlights, uh, it highlights the dependency of African countries on wheat from Ukraine. What can we do now to prevent these countries from suffering famine, social and political unrest? The problem is, of course, not immediate, but could happen. It's true because, of course, we know that African countries, and some of them particularly, are depending on the, the, the imports of Russia and Ukraine on wheat. Nevertheless, uh, it's true that there is very big difficulties to compensate what could happen because the, the intra-African market, trade market on wheat is very weak and that the supply uh, is small, the infrastructure and storage capacity are also very limited. So it's we, we probably uh, will witnessing problems for the next agricultural season because we have also a problem with fertilizers which are imported from Russia and Ukraine. So it's true that it's really an issue that we have to address um, very quickly 
in order to help the countries to try to find compensation, not on African level, because it will not be the case, but from different parts of the world, in order to support uh, and maybe to avoid a food crisis uh, or limit effect of the food crisis. Um, what can governments do in Europe to protect their own citizens from the shockwaves of, of uh, food insecurity and also energy prices? And could we do something then as well to um, support now the developing countries? It's true that some, some things are uh, already done or decided on national level uh, for energy, energy prices and especially regarding taxation and how we can really help, especially the households in big difficulties or more precarious people in Europe, because it's the case for a lot of people also in Europe. That's more national level. On European level, maybe the Council of today and the next, the next Council will decide something which is more structural for EU as such regarding taxation uh, energy. But on long term, the question is really the, uh, the energetic independence of the EU. And, uh, and that's an issue which I hope will accelerate the, the um, ecological or energy transition. Uh, and I, I fear that sometimes we could go back to the old system uh, and not really accelerate what we have to do in the EU. So the Green Deal doesn't have to be uh, eaten by the crisis. In a, it's exactly the contrary. It has to be probably reinforced. Okay, thank you very much for that uh, answer. Um, I'd like to talk, turn to Paul now for my next question. Um, is Western and EU unity holding and how long can it hold as the pain threshold rises, Paul? Well, I think Western unity is holding and it's extraordinary. Uh, it's symbolised in today's uh, triple summit in Brussels where you've got uh, NATO, uh, the uh, G7 and the European Union all with special guests that might not normally have been expected, holding back-to-back uh, -back summits to show just as a demonstration of political unity and also, I think, of unity of, uh, in terms of the sorts of measures that they're taking. So you have um, Sweden and Finland being invited to the NATO summit, um, although they're not members, but they are very close partners and they're at least considering debating membership now more actively since Russia's invaded Ukraine. Uh, you have uh, uh, the United States, Canada, and uh, uh, Japan being invited to, to drop into the EU summit. Um, and that again symbolizes partnership. Um, and uh, along with that, you've got President Zelensky who's going to uh, address from uh, uh, Kiev his uh, uh, European uh, fellow heads of state and government. And that's a very important symbol. Um, and he's been making life in some ways uncomfortable for Western governments by pointing to their weaknesses, poking, pointing out where their companies are still doing business, asking for more and asking for more than he knows he can get. But he's doing so in order to, I think, keep, the, keep their feet to the fire and keep them supporting him. So, yes, I think that for the moment, unity is in quite a good place. Now, there's a strong determination to support Ukraine and to see um, Putin's war aims defeated. On the other hand, um, there, uh, there, there's also an agreement uh, that there should be more sanctions, but not to uh, take, let us say, um, self-harming uh, sanctions. And I think that's where there may be some debate today with some countries, particularly those that are least reliant on Russian oil and gas, saying that Europe should immediately cut off Russian oil and gas supplies uh, and countries like Germany making absolutely clear 
that that's a non-starter, uh, a non-starter, firstly, because it would inflict more harm on the European economy than it would on Russia. Would it uh, be guaranteed to change the balance in the war in, in Ukraine? Not at all. Um, but it could well rapidly lose public support for uh, the, the, the West's course in Ukraine, and therefore it could do more harm than good. Um, on the other hand, there will be, I think, uh, once again today, strong unity for the objective of rapidly reducing our dependence on uh, Russian energy. Um, and there may be more instructions to the European Commission uh, to come up with detailed plans for how we do that. So, uh, you know, there will always be people, particularly uh, in, the, in the media, in the commentariat, demanding more and saying that we are letting, letting Ukrainians die. We're, we're standing by as Ukrainians are slaughtered, <clears throat> that we, we're not putting uh, the roof over their heads, which some people believe we could do. But, um, you know, that, that would involve uh, taking, vastly raising the risk of a, of a direct military confrontation with Russia. And that's not something uh, that Western governments or Western publics actually want. Mm -hmm. Now, with um, NATO leaders meeting uh, on the day we record, what does this mean for NATO's future force posture? Are we looking back to um, massed tank divisions on the eastern borders? Well, in the short term, no. But in the long term, I think there is that debate going on, uh, already begun. And by the summer, I think NATO is going to have to come up with some answers on that. So in the short term, we're going to see um, more battle groups deployed uh, along the east. These are relatively small units. They're not units that anybody could conceivably imagine are there to attack Russia. They're simply there as a tripwire so that were Russia uh, to be tempted to attack uh, NATO, uh, then they would immediately internationalize the conflict because the first soldiers would to die would be Canadians or Americans or uh, Germans or French. And therefore, the whole of NATO would be engaged. Um, so they're a way of symbolizing that NATO is willing to defend its territory. They're there uh, for reassurance of those countries um, rather than and for deterrence, uh, rather than for defense. The question of whether we go back beyond that to a real Cold War posture, I think is on the table. I think there are many countries in Eastern Europe who now feel uh, that NATO has not done enough, that NATO has not taken the Russian uh, threat seriously enough, and that, that, that they will only feel comfortable if they have um, tank, uh, divisions of NATO tanks on their soil. Uh, that, in my view, would be unnecessary, unwise, um, and really sort of a, um, going back to fighting the last war, as it were. Because I think one of the things that the uh, Ukraine uh, conflict has illustrated already is that anti-tank weapons and smart, uh, smart use uh, combining networking, uh, drones, uh, anti-tank weapons and hit and run uh, attacks on the ground are much more effective uh, than, than, than divisions of tanks. Besides which, we don't have the divisions of tanks, so we would have to create them. That would put particular pressure uh, on Germany, but also on the UK, which went in completely the opposite direction in its strategic review last year, uh, moving to a much lighter, more nimble posture. So I don't think that's likely to happen, no. Okay, and, and how secure do we say that uh, NATO's non-belligerent status is? Um, what might push it over the edge? Maybe, uh, Paul, Chris, you want to come in on this one as well? Well, let me start by saying that I think that, um, you know, NATO's non-belligerent status is really only as, uh, as good as, uh, as NATO and Russia agree it is. That's to say that 
There, there's no international court that, that, that's going to say, wait a minute, you're now a belligerent. You know? So what does, uh, there's a general understanding that supplying arms to a country doesn't make you a belligerent. Um, there's a general understanding that supplying forces to a country does make you a, a co-belligerent. Um, so does that mean we don't have any special forces in Ukraine? I'd be surprised. Um, so, you know, that borderline is in fact very fuzzy. But in fact, there seems for the moment to be an understanding holding between NATO and Russia. And we don't know how long it will hold, because uh, as Russia potentially gets more desperate, seeing itself bogged down, not making progress, the temptation to sort of try in some way and widen the, uh, the conflict or to, to, to drag NATO in in some way um, uh, may, may arise, at least in the mind of, of, of Vladimir Putin. Um, but for the moment, you know, um, there seems to be an understanding NATO and Russia have both, for example, somewhat backed off in the Black Sea. NATO's basically, at the start of the conflict, or just before it, since January, taken all its ships out of the Black Sea, all of the, the outside uh, uh, allies. Now, um, it could send ships back in, but that would be a signaling that Russia might well want to exploit. It's a bit difficult, because I'm told that Romania has invited NATO to send minesweepers to sweep away mines, because there do seem to have been mines laid possibly by the Ukrainians, um, to defend against a possible amphibious attack from Russia. So you get into situations, you can just imagine uh, what Russian propaganda might make of NATO minesweepers uh, appearing suddenly in the Black Sea. You know, they would presumably say, A, this proves that Ukraine is mining, is part illegally part of, uh, mining, and B, uh, uh, those NATO ships are really there to lay mines, not to sweep them, so on. So it would, it, it, it's a slippery slope. And I think the, the answer is, for the moment, it suits both sides for there not to be an east-west conflict. Um, and NATO needs to be careful that it doesn't uh, overstep that line. But at the same time, NATO has been able to provide a lot of very valuable help to Ukraine in the areas of intelligence, technology, uh, and uh, um, uh, defensive weapon supplies without overstepping that line so far. Thank you. Chris, is there anything you would like to add? Uh, I think Paul covered it all very well. I think in this situation, there's a few things I would add to that. And that is, um, you know, with all the aircraft flying around along the borders, there's always a risk of, of flying across the wrong border or, or, you know, air defenses of, for example, Poland engaging. The other night we had a a Russian bomber on its way home, a Russian combat aircraft flying back from Ukraine, flew through Polish airspace. Of course, you know, this is where keeping calm, keeping a steady trigger finger and not um, sort of taking the bait if it shows. I mean, things happen, you know, military operators make mistakes and cross borders. So I think it's 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 vitally important for, for NATO to sort of keep its nerve in this situation. The other thing I think uh, in terms of looking at what is happening to Russian forces, looking at the high level of attrition, I mean, we're looking at some of the numbers of their, their killed and wounded and equipment losses, um, looking in the 10% range, uh, for those who are un to the uninitiated, that might not sound like much, but that's an enormous loss. And I think the longer this grinds on, one thing I'm particularly looking for is at a certain point, uh, the leadership in Moscow will need to consider at what point will their losses be high enough that they face a strategic level of vulnerability that they won't, you know, they won't maintain enough 
equipped forces to defend the rest of their territory. And so there's a certain, and, and, you know, if you put traditional Russian security paranoia into the mix, you know, where is that line and how do they respond to that? So I think, you know, I saw a, a, a great article this morning, uh, you know, how, how will Putin and, and Biden and Europe decide how Putin loses this one? So I think that's an important one is every, you know, this, this to me looks a lot like the, uh, Russia-Germany battle of World War II, the battle of Kursk, where the Russians just kept pouring in forces until they won. But by the time after that, it was just the losses were enormous. Uh, and what, but what does that mean for Russia strategically if they continue to follow that path? I think Paul wants to come back in. Just one point uh, on, on that, I think. Yeah, the, 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 um, the, the, the unity of the West may start to crack a little bit when it comes to this question of what would be the terms of a uh, 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 of a Russian uh, defeat, but uh, you know that would ha- would be dressed up as as a peace agreement. Um, you know where uh, there are some people who uh, will strongly argue against any kind of concession to any of the demands that President Putin has ever made, uh, and say that we are uh, dropping our pants to Russia, that we are that this is appeasement, and so on. And we need to keep a cool head here because I think some of the uh, uh, you know, things that President Zelensky is, is prepared to agree to, uh, we shouldn't be the people that obstruct it. Um, I'd like to move on now to um, the new phenomenon um, that we're seeing in this war, which is the effective global whole of society effort. Um, i turn to you, Chris, because um, I know that you've, you've written an article on, on this very point. Could you talk us through the advantages of, of this whole of society effort um, and also the dangers? Well, certainly, Tracy, I'd, like to, I'd be happy to address that. This is whole society is something I've worked on for a number of years in different fora. Uh, and I never could have imagined in all the years of working on this to see this level of global response. And it's, and I say global, it's South America, it's Asia, it's w- from within Russia, uh, Middle East, it's, 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 it's the actors who are jumping into this on the cyber and the information realm are, it, it's remarkable. So what we're seeing is um, between uh, infor- sort of information first responders online taking disinformation or reports and sort of t- either debunking the report or turning it into something that could be like finished intelligence that's provided to the Ukrainian government or to journalists. Uh, you know, it's remarkable to see that the Wikimedia Ukraine situation map is of the same quality level that you'd find in London or Washington or Berlin, you know, the, the, for a government that spends millions of euros to get this kind of information. It's sort of out there uh, right now. But I think the important thing for me is, is especially on the cyber and information side, this whole of society effort is almost like a swarm. It's almost like white blood cells in a human body attacking a virus, going after really anything connected to Russia. Uh, and these are actors that are moving, with, they're not under any hierarchy, they're not under any government hierarchy, they're moving very rapidly. You know, a government will take some time and consider the moves it will make. Institutions will do the same. These individual actors are something else. They're moving very fast, not under a hierarchy, and they're motivated morally. They're motivated by moral outrage and moral obligation, and their moral leader in this case, the moral leadership is coming from President Zelensky. Um, and so I think, you know, for in a lot of ways, it's very positive for the cause of, you know, Ukraine defending itself. But when I back up and look at the bigger, longer picture, um, you know, people who are motivated in this way can also be motivated, manipulated by disinformation. Uh, you can turn that swarm of public and civil society actors against their own institutions. I mean, we saw that in the United States on January 6th. 
with the attack on the U.S. Capitol, uh, the attempted storming of the Bundestag in August of 2020. We've seen it in numerous attacks on vaccine centers and GSM towers throughout Europe. And so I think the important thing here is um, the danger of it being manipulated. It, it, to me, also becomes more apparent when we look to the coming years where uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, and AI-enabled information bots are going to be, create much more potent tools for disinformation actors. And so I think, you know, this is where I get to uh, the idea of, you know, for a few years now, there has been talk of sort of a Geneva Convention on the information sphere, on the cyber sphere. And I, and I think, you know, we shouldn't wait until after the horror of a, uh, a conflict ends to start talking about that. So I, I'll leave it at that for now, but I think it's a, it's an interesting, it's a powerful new uh, ca capability that society has. And in particular, like I call them hyper-empowered actors and citizens who have technical know-how and uh, through the democratization of technology, they have access to tools where they can reach in and influence what's happening there to a degree we've never seen before. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, I'd like to uh, bring Isabel in here. I, I see that you may have a question, uh, Isabel. No, I, I would like to add something to what was said. I, I agree on the fact that these new alliances are really interesting and changing a lot. But we have also to be aware because uh, when I see more or less the 30 countries abstaining in the UNGA, just General Assembly on the resolution of Ukraine. And regarding what I said about the, the economic consequences of the war on African countries, some of them, China, India, we don't know exactly how they will, which will be their behavior in the next months and even years. <clears throat> because it's true that um, propaganda or Russian propaganda is very, uh, actively developed in uh, in Africa, also in Latin America, when we see Venezuela and other countries. So we have to be aware because it's nice. We are really Europe-oriented, and it's true that now it's happening here. But we have also to look which are the the pot potential evolution in the future because other regions of the world which are economically very strong, even stronger than the, than the EU as such, uh, could also have some political reaction which are not what we would like to see. So I think that we have to keep really uh, pay attention to that because it's not only a Western issue, it's also a South issue, or it will become a South issue, especially with the food and fuel crisis, all this commodity market, which will have an influence on the political and strategical attitude of each of them. Chris, do you want to come back in? No? Okay, then I will move to um, my next question for you, Chris, which was, I, I read your article um, in which you said, uh, you were actually asked the question, is it time for a Geneva Convention for the information sphere? So I'd like to put that question back to you. Um, do you think so? And uh, if so, what could this convention look like? Yeah, I think... The idea of a digital Geneva Convention has been discussed for some time. I know as, uh, as far back as February of 2017, you had, uh, you had uh, I think it was uh, Chief Legal Officer for Microsoft who was sort of proposing one. Uh, unless, if we think back to the last Geneva Convention of 1949, you know, the idea was to protect civilians and non-combatants during warfare. Uh, and you think about the evolution of the law of armed conflict and how 
you know, up to going into the Second World War, we didn't really have provisions that dealt with aerial bombing. And you saw what happened with aerial bombing in the Second World War. So we refined that. Uh, it, it took a number of years to add conventions on uh, chemical and nuclear weapons, to add conventions on uh, what was called low intensity conflict, to those sorts of things. And so I think what's interesting for us in, the, in particular here is define, you know, uh, first of all, we have there. There is some will out there to do this. There have been. I know back in 2018, uh, President Macron was uh, pushing for something like this. I know different entities, you know, mainly private sector led, uh, with the UN, some elements of the UN have tried to advance this. But I think for us in particular, what makes it interesting is uh, if we look at just today, uh, you know. Is the role of private actors? You know, in the past, it was always state actors. State actors, state actors uh, sign the Geneva Convention. State actors would adhere to it. State actors would hold their citizens accountable. But what happens? You know, can Google be a, a belligerent in war? Can a private actor be a belligerent? And what does that mean? Anonymous, the the you know private hacking group, the very loosely organized private hacking group, has declared war on on Putin. And his regime. What does that mean? Uh, does that mean that then, if they are declared belligerents, that the Russian regime can reach back and, and act on them and say they were acting under the law of war? So these are, there's a lot of ambiguities here we need to cover and look at. I think it would be extremely difficult uh, going forward. I think defining belligerence. I think I'm not a lawyer, but I think a lot of the legal aspects of this would be difficult. But I, you know, when you look at where we are now with connectivity that we have had cyber attacks have caused grave problems to uh, health systems, to uh, uh, air traffic control systems, all these sorts of things. These, they can cause harm to life. They can cost life. If you look into the future at the internet of things, when all of our uh, you know, respirators, insula, insulin dispensers, all sorts of things, just if you just look at the health sector, um, a cyber attack can, can, can kill people. Right. So there, there's it's an act. You can cause damage to humans. Uh, you can can and cause loss of life uh, through cyber means and through some of these other means. And so I think this is where, you know, it, if we look at this as a new sort of weapon, then how do we what sort of international law will be applied to that? Uh, I know there have been a lot of efforts at that, but I think right now is the time to remember that because this is, you know, we're only a month into this. We don't know where it's going. And, and we all, but we do know that our plans for the future involve us to be entirely digital societies, right? Where Europe is going through a digital transition. There's a digital, huge digital transition happening in Africa. And so if we're going to live digital lives and we can be impacted digitally, what does that mean? And so I think it's worth exploring. I don't have all the answers, but I think I have a lot of the questions um, but again, this isn't something new. This is about a five-year-old uh, concept, if not longer. Uh, but I think it's worth bringing up again. And that's why I put it in that article to ask that question. Okay, thank you. Um, we're running out of time, but I would like to um, bring in two questions from our citizens. Um, we have uh, Anthony who asks, why is the West considering lifting sanctions against Venezuela and Iran? Um, and would we just lift sanctions against Russia if another country such as China did something uh, we didn't like? And if Russia had some resource uh, we needed? Uh, who, Isabel, Chris? Just, just a, a small reaction to, to this, uh, this question. 
um, it's true that I see in my conference with, with all 195 countries that, of course, Iran, Venezuela, and others, or Cuba, uh, victims uh, of unilateral sanctions are really a lie regarding the, the, the sanction that Europe and EU took uh, against Russia. It's true that economic sanction are, is, is a tool, a tool with advantage, but also with disadvantages. It's a, a difficult tool to use, it's true, but uh, it's true that we have also today a kind of alliances between the countries, victims uh, of, of, of sanctions, whatever we think about those sanctions, but it's true that it changed a little bit the, 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 the move and, and the power uh, between the countries because of course uh, they try to demonstrate that they are also uh, unfairly uh, affected by unilateral sanctions. And it's true that for them, they try to show they also their own uh, um, problems with these sanctions. Thank you very much for coming back um, and, and answering Anthony's question. I also have another question from Michael. Um, he asks, will the Ukraine crisis make the EU reconsider the European refugee crisis in the Mediterranean? Isabel, perhaps this is one for you. Yeah, it's true that, uh, of course, we, we, we are really happy to see the, the fantastic movement for welcoming the refugees of Ukraine but we have not seen the same in the previous uh, crisis and especially uh, what happened in Syria, but in Yemen and in other parts of the world. So it's true that it's a really uh, open question for all uh, governments, how do they consider all refugees on the same way? Uh, and that's not the case today. We have, to, we have to admit that it's not the case and we have seen what happened in the Mediterranean Sea uh, all these last years with a lot of problems and incapacity from the EU to have an agreement on Dublin issues and all this capacity to, to welcome properly refugees, uh, less refugees than today, very less. Uh, it's true that uh, uh, I think that for a lot of activist people helping refugees from the previous crisis, it's really some things that is difficult to accept today, even if, of course, they are of co they, we, are, we will not blame the Ukrainian refugees because of the past, but the past has to be addressed on a, on a, on a way which is equitable and acceptable for all refugees. Otherwise, there is no diff different standards. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to have to leave it there this week. Um, I'd like to thank you, uh, our guest speaker, Isabel Durand, um, also our fellows, uh, Paul Taylor and Chris Cremides courtney And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to episode seven of this Frankly Speaking special on the war in Ukraine. Thank you.